Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's the Britflix.com podcast. It's the Britflix.com podcast. Welcome to another Britflix.com podcast. My name's Stuart Wright and I'm definitely with Alex Walker. Hello Alex, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? I'm very good, I'm very good. Um... You're the writer, director, editor, and producer on a feature film called Fossil that we've got into our into our hands. Do you want to give the listener a brief synopsis of what that film is? I will, yeah. Um, it's basically, I would call it a drama thriller, um, and it's all set in the south of France, about two uh, mid-30-something man and a woman who are a couple, recently married, um, whose relationship has hit the skids, so... The husband takes the wife down to the south of France to try and inject some life and love back into their marriage. Um, and obviously things don't go to plan, as these things never do. Um, and then just as things are about to reach breaking point, their holiday is kind of interrupted by a slightly older American, kind of what can best be described as a slacker, I guess, and his young French girlfriend who kind of mix things up a bit. And through their arrival everything starts to uh, initially starts to seem okay um, but then obviously it ends a little bit messily and everything kind of comes out of the closet and old secrets are unearthed and it, it descends into a little bit of chaos towards the end it's that it's that lovely thing isn't it where it's the um, the it's amazing what will show and tell strangers that we won't tell people we love exactly that yeah I mean that was that was the kind of the main thing about it was that the wife character has kind of is, is confined herself to a little room, a kind of metaphorical room in the relationship. And then these these two people who appear, kind of, you know, she lets herself out to them, much to the annoyance of the husband, which then obviously creates tension and creates these, this kind of competition between the two men. And then the young French girl obviously opens up kind of sexual tensions and all that kind of thing. So, I must, I must admit, I like that element to it because, you know, men, men are quite rational. And if you tell yeah. a man we've gone away to a country house, uh, sorry, a, a southern, south house kind of um, villa, southern France villa, yeah. then then he's gone there to repair his relationship. If other people come along, then that wasn't part of the rational plan. But obviously, the the wife, the girlfriend or wife sees it as part. Maybe there's an opportunity here, as well as respite from the intensity of what they're trying to fix. Because obviously, as the reveal, without spoiling anything, as the reveals come out, you understand why their relationship's on the rocks. Yeah. 
So I thought that was quite nice, that that kind of um, that, that little trade-off between the two of them. Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's it's kind of you know anyone who's in a relationship will know that you know the the, the two people in a relationship have a certain way of being, and when they're on their own. You know, they, they exist in a certain way and as soon as you're thrown into even something as kind of mundane as a drink in the pub or a dinner party, you know, the characters change somewhat and, and, and people act in different ways for a variety of reasons. And I, I, this, this kind of setup was basically kind of, you know, if everything is as terrible as it can possibly be, how would people, you know, people hide this, especially the British? Um, they very much hide the kind of the underlying problems and the seething thing. It's the classic stiff upper lip kind of middle classness of British people, really. No, and he, he is a very good middle class British bloke. I must have he is, he's fantastic, I think. He, he did a great job. <laughs> right, so before we go into more detail about the process of making that film, let's look at you as a filmmaker. Okay. So um, what, what or who do you think represents a tipping point in your mind where you thought, I want to make films? Yeah, I mean, it's always a tricky question. That I mean, I've kind of I've thought about it, you know, when you kind of look back over how your career's gone and how your career's hopefully going to go. You always think back to what was it that really influenced, you know, what a wanting to become a filmmaker and b actually kind of taking the jump. And I think they're two slightly different things. I think when I was younger, I was always my father was in the army, so I was always travelling around, and I didn't have much of a connection to the UK. Um, and I obviously had lots of friends in the UK, so you know, trying to keep on top of those relationships with my buddies was very, very difficult. Um, and the only connection I had to them really was, you know, I'm a very much an 80s child, so it was kind of VHS upbringing that I had, and all those, and that was the only thing I could talk about with my friends on a constant basis was all the movies we'd watch, you know, everything yeah. from Gremlins to Ghostbusters to all those classic 80s movies. Um, and from there, I kind of got into. I, I guess I got more interested into the whole writing process in my teens, really, and I started reading film novelizations, and it was always very much film-based, my kind of reading and writing habits. Um, yeah. And, you know, as every 16-year-old, 17-year-old, you know, we all, you kind of write little stories and diaries and all kinds of things. And then I guess it was at university, really, um, and I didn't do filmmaking at university initially. I, I studied history. Okay. Um, but I am, um, you know, I kind of... Towards the end of my university, I'd, I'd been watching a lot of movies at university, as you do on a Saturday night with lots of beer. Um, and I kind of decided that I really, really love films. And, I, you know, as, as you become aware of yourself, you realise quite how much time you spend in front of a cinema screen or in front of a TV screen. Um, and I kind of started angling my history degree towards the history of film as much as I could. So, you know, my dissertation was on Soviet cinema and... I started to look at propaganda films and all that kind of thing. Um, so that was where I guess it really kind of kicked over. And I decided, I have no idea the exact moment I decided, but at some point in my third year at university, while studying history, I decided I wanted to make films. So I kind of came out with this kind of very naive confidence that that's what I was going to do and that was the only thing I was going to do. And from there, it kind of moved on. And it, it's been a struggle, but... You know, the, the, there's lots of people who want to make films. There's lots of creatives out there who are far more talented than me and, and who, who want to get into that. So it's just a kind of... I, I, I had that blind confidence at the beginning and I've kind of never lost that blind naivety, really, where I, and I've just kind of trundled through and carried on doing it without any thought to doing anything else, really. No, that's, that's, that's a hell of an asset because, because logic would certainly get in the way. Yeah. I think my... my uh, 
my family especially have constantly been telling me to get a proper job, like we were talking about earlier, and uh, you know, try and you know always do something where you can get a pension and all that kind of things. But I've, I've, I don't think I'm really, I don't think I have the ability to do that, and I don't think I really have any interest in doing that. So, you know, I've I've managed to carve out a, a niche in the filmmaking world, which. Did, did um, you did you take on any formal filmmaking education at all, or has this all been sort of your own sort of love of it and enthusiasm and trial and error? Um, I did. Well, after I, after I finished uni, I, I came down to London and you know, started trying to be a freelance cameraman with absolutely no experience and mm. bought an a iMac edit suite and started making my own little short films with a handy cam and whatnot, which were absolutely terrible and hopefully they'll never see the light of day. But yeah. After and you know, I had to fund that. I had to get a job, so I worked in a bar, um, and then I got a really terrible job in a travel agent, selling people holidays to the Caribbean all the time, which is probably the most depressing thing you can do. Um, and after after I kind of saved up about six grand from there because I was living with my parents at the time, and I thought, all right, this is not going to plan. I'm not making films. I've got to get back to that. So I decided to enrol at an MA at Goldsmiths College in filmmaking. Oh, okay, um, and. I, I kind of decided that was what I was going to do, regardless of what the content of the course was, really, um, because I needed to get back into the whole filmmaking thing. And um, it, was a, it was a really good course, but it was less technical than I'd wanted, and it was much more kind of production and script writing based, which in hindsight has served me very well, because that kind of education in writing and that education in the machinations of production and budgeting and scheduling has, was, has been really, really handy, especially for producing Fossil. Um, but it was less technical than I wanted. So as soon as you know, I did that MA for a year while working in bars, and I actually did the classic cliched thing of working in a video shop for about six months as well. Good lad, good lad. Um, and then so after that MA, then I decided, you know, I had this. I carried on working in the bar. I made some good friends in the bar and kind of started freelancing, making short films, doing as much as possible in order to get experience in the film industry. And from there, really, it was kind of five or six years of hard graft, doing odd jobs here, working for American TV companies as a camera assistant, doing short edit jobs on wedding videos, on corporates and whatever else it really was. So, yeah, my, my only formal experience really was in scheduling, budgeting and, and writing. Um, and the rest of it has all kind of been learned from the job over the years, really. And do you, I mean... I mean, looking. I, I was looking at your, your credits on IMDb, and there's a couple of documentary stuff there. But, yeah. And I was going to ask you about what experience they gave. What, what did they teach you that you could bring into narrative filmmaking? But, but thinking more about what you've just described there, that kind of whole kind of, I guess, random hodgepodge of experience. Yeah. That happened. I mean, has that helped? Do you feel that's helped with you as a filmmaker? Yeah, I think. As a, I mean, the, I'll come on to the documentary thing in a minute, but mm. I think as a general rule, the more knowledge about as many different facets of the filmmaking process you can get is, is can only be beneficial to being a filmmaker. I mean, you know, I, I, as I said, I started off doing, using kind of Sony Handycams and graduated onto Sony FX1s and then graduated onto Canon and all these kind of things. Just the ability to use them and understand framing and understand, you know, especially in today's crazy digital world, understanding bit rates and codecs and all of those kind of things. And I kind of, as they were all coming in, I was kind of teaching myself and learning myself from experts and stuff. And that knowledge is really, really vital, I think. Um, and it, I'm not saying I'm an expert in any particular field or anything, but just having the knowledge about editing and having the knowledge about, you know, a few lighting and colour temperature and learning all those things is really, really 
because it means you can talk the language of all the the experts that you're going to be working with on longer films. Um, of course, I mean, I guess I guess com- confidence in your own competence is it takes you a long way, doesn't it? Yeah, exactly, and and, and people can kind of read that. You know, that everyone can smell out. Uh, a bullshitter, if you like. Um, so it's it's nice to have that general knowledge about filmmaking. Um, and then moving on, I mean, the documentary side of things was a little bit of an accident. I didn't really meet. I never planned to make documentaries. Okay. Um, it was. I mean, after I'd done freelancing for, as cameraman, I was doing editing. I was basically a jack of all trades, and there are a lot of us around, or a lot of people who still do that around, and it's a very valid forms I think you know budgets being slashed and people doing all that stuff is great um but I, I got a bit fed up with it really and kind of struggling to find work and I was constantly having to back up my income working in bars so I found up a friend of mine who'd just been made redundant because the boss had run off with all the money um from a marketing company and he um and I said how do you fancy setting up a film company and we didn't really have any idea about what we were doing but we kind of, <laughs> again blindly ran into it and said yeah yeah let's do it so he came back from traveling across America for six months. And um, we came, sat in the pub, came up with a title for the company, and then limited it and kind of went. And somehow, we're, you know, I think it's eight years later, nine years later now, we're still here and got a little team of people who we make lots of corporate videos with. And, and it's been great. And at the beginning of that, obviously, getting the work was quite tough. So, you know, we jumped at all sorts of creative opportunities and we made a few music videos. And one of the... Um, guys I made a music video with offered us a little space in his music studio um, and he's a very good friend of mine still and he, he came to me with this idea talking about producing a documentary about country music being played by British bands so you know I didn't I wasn't fully booked in terms of work I was struggling for work so we said kind of yeah let's do that let's go for it and that that's where that film came from and then that film you know it took about a year and a half to make but then it got into South by Southwest and it got quite a lot of PR um, and it kind of kick-started us. And as a company, I think it gave us a lot of prestige. And from there, we've kicked on with the corporate stuff um, and, and gone from there, really. What do, you, what do you think then? I mean, you, you, you said on your MA, you kind of got, you, you sort of got your chops in in terms of writing. And yeah. uh, I mean, I'm always fascinated to, to, to see how documentary filmmaking can, uh, what, what it teaches narrative filmmakers. I mean, I asked that because I've, I've just recently done a short myself with, with some guys who's, Whose work up to up to this date has been documentaries and promo videos. Yeah, and it, and and I, and I and I found it fascinating ha- working with them. I just thought, from your point of view, what do you think it was about making the? Because it's they're obviously longer form than your normal corporate video, I presume, aren't they? Yeah, they are. I think what the key thing I learned is that the edit is absolutely crucial. Um, <laughs> and I'd like to say I knew that before, but I don't think I just I knew quite how important the edit was in any filmmaking process. Um, and I think it, it's obviously a quite slightly different process in documentary-wise. Documentary-wise, you film a hell of a lot of stuff and you're not quite sure, well, they say you're meant to be sure what the story is, but you're never really quite sure what the story is when you start shooting. So, you know, we had eight months worth of footage filmed on weekends, evenings, all sorts of musicians, all sorts of um, interviews with experts, kind of random footage of bands playing. I mean, I think we left about 10 bands on the cutting room floor, but we had all this kind of stuff. And then trying to understand how to manage that and turn that into some kind of narrative was a massive learning experience. And I think what the crucial thing that I've taken from that is that if you're aware of what you are going to do in the edit, especially in narrative filmmaking more so than anything else, um, it's it's much easier, cheaper, quicker 
faster and the crew are generally more happy if you know exactly what you need to get. And I think my kind of experience as an editor, and especially, and it's not just the doc making that's done that, it's also the corporate making, you know, you kind yeah. of go for a half a day shoot and you have to be told to make a 10 minute film, you know, you know, you've got to know exactly what you're going to get in order to make that film work. So I think all the documentary filmmaking, the corporate filmmaking, it's all made me realize that there's only, you, you need a certain amount to make a film work. And if you are aware and confident in what you're going to get, then it's much easier and cheaper um, and much, much easier on the editor later on as well. And I think that served us incredibly well on Fossil because I don't think Fossil would have been possible. I mean, we shot it in 18 days um, in the south of France. And I, I don't think that would have been possible if I wasn't kind of 80% aware of what, how the scenes were going to be cut and how the scenes were going to be edited. And obviously things change on the day when you're shooting and you have to make things up but and make things up as you go along. But to, to have a kind of base knowledge of what you're trying to do in the edit, I think is crucial. Excellent. No, that makes a lot of sense. Makes a lot of sense. So, so um, logic would have it then that you would then, obviously with the love of film brewing in you all the time, you would eventually given the opportunity to make a feature film. And yeah. you have so well done on that front. Thank um, you. What what? How was Fossil conceived then as a feature film? In, in I mean, given the, the the background you've painted here of what you've been doing and what you are doing, how, how did how did Fossil come about in amongst all that? Well, I think I mean I'd always, as I mentioned, documentary filmmaking was a bit of an accident. Corporate filmmaking was very much to pay the bills. Um, sure. Uh, had the tools, so feature filmmaking was always there, and it was always the kind of the pinnacle and that the thing aiming I was aiming towards and long may it continue touch touch wood cross fingers um but I think that you know as you'll know as a writer that there's always lots of ideas that pop into your head and there's always lots of thoughts and you kind of take an idea and run with it for a few weeks and then sometimes they take and sometimes they last a couple of months and sometimes they don't and sometimes they last a few days and sometimes you think of them when they're you're drunk and then you realize the next day they're rubbish um so there are all these kind of different ideas and I've constantly had a kind of stream of ideas you know I've got filled notebooks full of all sorts of ridiculous plots and different types of films um, and I think it was just a, a kind of bottleneck of frustrations about not having being able to do anything and we'd put in a, I'd written four or five scripts that I'd hoped to get off the ground and nothing had come to anything um, and I thought right how am I going to remedy this situation I haven't made a feature film? Um, and I, I, I did the thing where I thought, what, what, what can I use? Where, where can I go? If I wanted to make a film tomorrow, where could I go? What could I do that would enable me to do that? Um, so obviously I needed a small cast and I needed a, a different location. I didn't just want to shoot one on the back streets of East London you know, and make a kind of hipster film. That wasn't really me. That wasn't really what I wanted to do. So I thought about locations and I suddenly remembered this house in the south of France where I'd spent loads and loads of summer childhoods. It's, my, it's actually the house in the, the cottage in the film is actually my godfather's house. Wow. I started and I, a lot of the scripts that I'd been writing had been about couples and kind of strangers coming in and it's quite a classic kind of film setup. So I kind of looked through all my notes and came up with this story of this kind of couple and the characters changed from there really but I knew they were going to go to holiday in the south of France. And a lot of the kind of subconsciously, I think at the time, I wasn't really aware of it, but a lot of the, the parts of it, the fossil especially, is all kind of very much rooted in my childhood. Because I remember going there on holiday and finding a little archaeology dig run by Americans in the valley next to the house and they were giving us fossils and 
and that kind of thing. Um, so it's it's very much rooted in you know the fact that I needed to make a film, I had to make a film, and then trying to find some kind of narrative within a location that I could easily get my hands on. Yeah. Um, and and that was where it all started, really. Okay. So I mean, you you mentioned there about notebooks full of ideas and stuff, and things things brew longer than others, and some fade and die, and obviously this one survived all that all that scrutiny. So yeah. what, what's your when you when you when you got down to brass tacks and you're making the script for Fossil, you know what what's what's your writing habit then? Are you are you a strict outliner? You know, index card in it. Are you working up from a log line? Um, the log line. I've never written a log line in my life until after I've written the script in order to try and get other people interested in it. Um, <laughs> so and and I still one hundred percent believe that's the only point of it. Is to, so you can say, well, you know, it's. Um, this meets this, and then people understand it. Um, and, and, I, and as you know, most writers will say, kind of a ninety-page script or a hundred-page script should never really be to put down in a paragraph because it doesn't really make sense. But you know, you have to do these things. But I, I, I would say my two, I, what I start off with is a, is writing a very basic outline where I start write scenes, just kind of really heads of scenes, and just go through it and and until I'm happy that I've got. Four, a four-page long document that lists the scenes one after the other, um, and that's and then I know this is very not what people are meant to do. I literally just dive in and go for it um, and just start writing. And normally on that first draft stage is when you get I get to about thirty or forty pages and then realise the idea isn't quite as good as I thought it was. Um, but with this one, I just kind of carried on writing really and never stopped. Um, and I was so, and then mixed in with the fact that I was so convinced we could make this film, and that we needed such a small amount of money to do it, I kind of the blind confidence meant I sent out the first thirty or forty pages of the script to casting agents to get actors before I'd even written the end of the film. Oh, go you! Uh, and I kind of, and then we got, we did loads of audio, and as this all was going on, we got people coming back to us saying we're really interested, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And I just carried on writing and carried on writing. So. You know, I think we'd cast it just as I was finishing the first draft, and the first draft is very, very different to the final film. Okay. Um, the structure is quite similar, but a lot of the scenes are different. Um, but it was, it was just that kind of blind confidence. I knew we could make this film, and I knew it was going to happen, and it all just seemed to fit in to place. And from that structure, I kind of managed to, and it was that, that I've still got the initial structure document, which is a kind of four pages of A4 with all the scenes written, and it's, it is very, very close to the actual structure of the final film, it's just, you know, the actual action of the scenes is a little bit different from, from the original ideas. That's, that's all very, very inspiring, sir, very inspiring. Um, so, w w when, you, when you were getting in the throes of, sort of, from that first draft onwards, I guess when you start to play with it and, and, and really refine it, what, what was... Um, what was the most challenging scene to come up with in terms of showing the story or and or characters developing? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I was kind of trying to think back to it because it was, I wrote it in 2011, which was about three years ago. But yeah. I do. there are two scenes that I particularly remember being really, really difficult. Um, and the first one was when the American guy and his girlfriend appear and how they arrive in the story, if you like. Mm. Um, and I think the first, it wasn't until the, the kind of eighth or ninth draft um, I say draft loosely. I mean, some were long, some were more comprehensive rewrites than others. But um, the, every single time I re kind of tweaked things, I always came back to that script and was constantly changing the way they appeared in the story. Hmm. Um, and I don't think it was until about a month before shooting that I came up with it as it is existing at the moment. And it just seemed to make 
much more sense with them kind of arriving in the pool, which is where everything happens, basically. Um, but until that point, I was just really struggling with it, and there were different versions of it with them camping out in a field, with them meeting on the road, with them finding the 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 husband after he's had his accident, with all sorts of different things. So, and nothing seemed to work until I kind of hit upon the idea as it exists at the moment. Um, but that was a real struggle. Um, no, I mean, and that's I mean, that's real. I mean, and it's and, and I, I think you, you you did you did well to get that. I think is it, it really is a dramatic moment because we we've seen lots of films and when we see strangers in, a, in when you're at your house, you your alarm bells ring and if they're nice, your alarm bells keep ringing and that's what's yeah. that's what's great about the drama in it. Yeah, and I, I mean, it's, and looking back on it with hindsight, it's 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 kind of obvious that that's what should happen because it adds <laughs> level of tension and this level of kind of what the hell are they doing? Well, this is really creepy. Um, but at the time, it was just a real struggle to get there. And it's interesting that sometimes the most simple things are the hardest to kind of come up with. Um, and then, it, it, on a slightly different note, there's a scene in the middle which is all set around the river. Um, mm. Uh, which wasn't difficult in terms of conceiving the scene because I knew I knew that we had to get out of the house and we had to do a scene which kind of broke up the the kind of claustrophobia of everything. Yeah. But it was the, the, that was where I struggled with the dialogue there, and I was still not completely happy with the dialogue there because um, it's kind of a little bit more, especially between uh, the French girl and and John, who plays the main character. It's still a little bit esoteric and it's still a little bit kind of almost too philosophical which I wanted to do but it just doesn't quite sit true for me and I'd always struggled with that dialogue there um but yeah I think those are the two two the, the probably the hardest scenes yeah well no, I mean I, I think that the the, the the um the, the boat scenes was, I think that was a, 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 like you say it was it was getting us out of the house getting us out of that holiday house and so we could we could you know we could take the more of the splendor in of south of France and yeah. I thought she I thought she was quite true to herself really um and it was a good contrast against what you were doing with the uh, the fella and the wife as well, because it was, it was, and and, the, and again the bloke, the bloke well, we don't won't say what the bloke does, but the bloke does exactly what a bloke you'd expect to do. Yeah, you know, as opposed to uh, think this is a moment for reflection or advice. He thinks with another part of his body, not his brain. Yeah, well, that's very kind of you to say that. And, and it's interesting. A lot of people who've watched the film say that that scene is their favorite scene i think it because it does just break the the kind of tension of being cooped up in 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 the kind of villa cinematically it kind of it it it, it plays with our expectations you know you're not you're not ready for that and it would have been easy for you to write a scene i guess just sat on a, on a beach sat on the bank of a river but the idea they're in boats and stuff it just it just is more interesting you know to look at and i, and I think that you know accepting that challenge in your film when it presumably would have been easy to set up two people sat on a bench to have the yeah. same conversation yeah, yeah. I mean, I imagine we'll we'll talk about that in a second. But the um, <laughs> uh, yeah. I, but I, I kind of knew that keeping everyone in a house for too long would drive the actors to distraction, drive me to distraction. There's only so many ways you can shoot a house, and also I think it, you've got to love a challenge, haven't you? And mm. uh, kind of telling so that and that when he the, first uh, read the script question like, about what what scenes presented you with the most challenge as a director. Um, I, well, I mean, I think logistically, the, well, as soon as we left the house, that was the hard bit in terms of filming, yeah. um, going up the hill behind the house with the cave and everything and balancing a very heavy camera and lights on a kind of 45 degree incline slope was always a fun bit. Um, 
and it was the, the wild scenes when when we moved away from the house really that were logistically a nightmare and the boat scene the boat those two days on the river were a complete nightmare um i was before i started the edit i was really really concerned about that it was it just so happened that up until those two days the sun was shining bright there wasn't a breath of wind in the in the trees there was it was just absolutely perfect beautiful weather the day before we were due to go to the river it started raining in the evening um and then the winds just picked up for the entire time we were on the river. So poor old sound man was having a nightmare trying to create some kind of low budget craft, which was safe for five people to sit around behind a camera while on the water. It was very entertaining. Um, I've got some classic photos of, of the craft we created. It looks a bit like a kind of modern day Contiki. <laughs> um, but it was, yeah, I mean, it, now I can laugh about it, but those two days were pretty stressful. And I think, as soon as you involve more people than what you have control over in a scene and you involve the elements and you involve uh, kind of the weather and things get a lot more hard. And I think we had it. We we're quite blessed in the fact that, you know, by accident, I'd set, set most of it in the house. So it was relatively simple. We weren't disturbed by anybody. You know, there was no noise. There was no. And as soon as we got into the towns and as soon as we got onto the river and as soon as we got into the woods, um, various things kind of reared their ugly heads and made things a lot more difficult. Um, so, was, yeah, those the are the you, logistically. Sorry, what was the response of the um, of the locals and stuff when you were in the, filming in the town? Did you have to get permission or did you just... No, we didn't have any permission, actually. We, um, I mean, the French are so much nicer than the British at letting filming just happen. Um, okay. I'm not talking about the people generally, but I think... The, the idea that people are being creative on the streets, you don't have to go through all the red tape of getting permission. I think I imagine in Paris it's slightly different. Um, yeah. But in these little towns, you know, they, they were great. We went there on market day. You know, people were persuading us to all go into their coffee shops to kick back and relax and giving us coffee. Anybody we asked if we could fill the cafe we filmed in front of were more than happy just to kind of let us sit there for two hours having a few coffees and stuff. So everyone was really, really friendly and lots of people were very interested came up and talked to us, in, but they were very aware of the filmmaking process, so they weren't kind of dancing around in front of the camera like you get on the streets of London. They were very much kind of respectful of what we were doing, and then they'd come and talk to us in between takes. Um, you know, they were finding out what the film was. They, really, they were really interested that we were an English film crew actually making a film out there. Um, so they were, they were absolutely delightful, and I've still got this aim to go back out to the town square one time and do a little screening for them <laughs> in the air. Uh, in, in the square, but I, I, just time has flown and I haven't managed to organise it. But I think I need to get in touch. It's a little town called Montpazier in the south of France. I'm determined to get in touch with the mayor and try and organise something. That would be wonderful. So that, that, that leads me on to my next question. It's very, very good with your segues there. Um, when, when, where and how can people get to see Fossil? Well, it's just in the UK. Um, it's just been released on DVD on Monday. Um, and it's also on video on demand. What so date's Monday? Because obviously we're not going to go out directly on the date. So what date are we talking it's available from? Oh, right, fine. I'll start that again. The, um, so, yeah, the DVD was released on the 28th of April. Um, and it's from Verve Pictures. So you can buy that from their website, which is vivaverve.com, or you can buy it on Amazon or all the other online portals. And then also if you're teched up, um, you can watch it on video on demand. It's on all the usual channels like iTunes, Blinkbox, Google Play, Xbox, things like that. So it's got a kind of home release, if you like, in the country, in this country. Um, and we're looking to get out in America now, although I think American audiences might struggle with it because it's quite a 
kind of French influenced middle class British film and how, how that would go down in America I'm not quite sure um, but yeah so it's available in this territory uh, now yeah, I mean, I, I must admit there is there is a strong European flavour in in not just because of the location, but also in the storytelling, in 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 the sense of uh, it's it's morally ambiguous to say the least. Yeah, I think if people say you know what kind of films was it were you in are you influenced by what kind of films do you like that I mean in terms of this particular film in terms of Fossil, I was very much kind of aware of French films um, yeah. and. You know, as as all film fans and and writers and filmmakers will tell you, there's there's kind of different pockets of film interest that that an individual can have. And one of my passions of films has been French kind of art house films. And I've always had a massive thing. And I did you know my dissertation at my MA was all about the new wave and and that kind of thing. So that was one pocket. I mean, I also absolutely love action films and I absolutely love horror films and I pretty much love all films, but. French filmmaking in particular was a lot of my education about how filmmaking came about. So, and setting, obviously the film was set in France, so I thought I'll try and riff on a few of the ideas from a lot of French dramas and French arty films of the 60s and 70s, and, and often more recent ones as well. Um, so there are, you know, films like Swimming Pool, which is a Francois on film, obviously the colour and style of it is quite similar to that. Um, and then a lot of the, there's a film called Le Mepri from the 1960s, which was a kind of quite an informative film when I was back in my pretentious film student days. So the, uh, there's, the, there's those kind of films. And there's also, you know, the, the, there's quite a trend, or in the 90s and early 2000s, there was a trend of kind of quite dark thrillers that came out of France. Um, stuff like Harry's Here to Help um, and Lemming and things like that, uh, which really kind of struck a chord with me as they, as, as I was kind of learning my trade, those were the films that really kind of stood out as very, very different to the mainstream. And I think those French and kind of European films of, the, of those kind of eras really have, you know, I really thought about those while I was writing and directing. Yeah, because I mean, without, without this, is, we don't want to spoil the end, but I'll, I'll keep using the phrase morally ambiguous. I mean, was there any temptation to neatly... Did any of your drafts neatly neatly uh, resolve the story? In terms of the relationship between the two main characters, or the way the way the way it ends, literally the way it ends, you know, the the the, the um, you know, whatever horrible thing has gone on. Yeah, there was. Um, There's no police cars, is there? Is what I mean. No, there, but there, yeah, there was. There were in various drafts. There were extra scenes of. Uh, especially the main the character, the husband, kind of acting on what's happened. Um, mm. And then, you know, ha having, and there were scenes of him, the decisions being made, if you like. And the, the, the path that they go down was always the same in all the drafts, but there was more in-your-face moments where you saw the ambiguity in them more, if you know what I mean, and you saw them making certain decisions for certain reasons. Yeah, this, this all sounds very. We haven't seen the film. It all sounds very peculiar. But no, no, no. I think it's. I mean, I don't want to give it too much away, but just it's just the, the fact that you did choose to be. You, you, you haven't you haven't made a moral judgment on what they've done and how that resolves itself. I think that was an interesting choice, and I think that yeah. you know, and, I, I, you know, the word is the term's overused, but it's that idea of the brave choice because it would have been easier to tell our heroes off in some way, shape or form. 
yeah, and let us go. Yeah, mm, they were bad, you know. Well, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, my when when writing the film, as as you know, the, the pair of the English pair, are, you know, they they're not perfect people, and they're they're pretty they're pretty kind of not reprehensible, but I don't think they're particularly empathetic characters. Um, but the my I really really like the husband. I think he was the one who was closest to my heart, and I I know a lot of people who are very similar to that kind of character and you know, through growing up in England and that kind of thing. So he, he was always my, and I, I didn't want, I didn't want them to get into trouble and I didn't. So, but I know that they probably would get into trouble for the things they were. So I didn't want to show too much of them, the potential for them getting in or out of trouble as a result of it. I think these things happen and then they, that life moves on this, the whole kind of, microcosm of the world that they're living in in this house um is which is kind of why i bookended it that the first shot and the last shot of the film are exactly the same as each other you know you've got the car arriving and then the car leaving again so i wanted to create this kind of completely separate chapter in their lives which was this trip to france which is everything that happens within there is very much contained within that particular chapter of their relationship narrative and where it goes from there i guess is up for you know, what's happened before comes out in dribs and drabs and what happens after this little chapter is kind of there for the audience to think about. And, 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 and I think film, that's, what made, and, that, that's what made me feel, you know, give it that kind of European edge. And when I say European, I mean not English in the sense. I mean, even though we're Europe, we don't, we don't tend to have this, this kind of sentiment about endings, do we, that, that, yeah. that you seem to find on the continent. And like you say, with your, your direct French influences, this idea that we, the audience, can invent what happens next in some senses yeah yeah exactly you've nailed it it's that kind of it's that kind of the, the films that always have inspired me the most and i've got the most out of the ones that you kind of want to go to the pub with the person you've seen it with and talk about for an hour um <laughs> and, you know what would happen what, what that that's interesting it brings up these interesting philosophical questions it you know that those are the kind of films that i really really enjoy so i don't think any of I'd love to say every film I make will be totally, completely at opposite ends of the spectrum to the previous one, but I don't think that's possible. So I think I'll, I'll always have that, that that kind of ambiguity and, and that kind of thought-provoking openness, if you like, to what I write, you know, for good or bad. And I think, you know, those kind of films are much harder to sell. I know, making... No, exactly. That's the thing. That's the reason. That's the reason. It's, it's, and that's, that's the reason why it's noticeable, because it's, it's, it is uncommon, and that's what, you know, hopefully it'll help the film live, live that bit longer as well. I hope so. Well, I think it, I mean, you've given us a lot of insight into your kind of into your your career so far. Mm. Um, what 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 valuable lesson learned do you, do you, early on in your kind of career, whether that be as a, as a hobby or as when you started to try and earn money in it? Do do you think has stood you in good stead still to this day? Um, it's a really good question. That I'm not. I don't. I mean, there's there's so many things you learn on every film you do, whether it's a small little corporate or a talking head interview, or you know, from how to interact with people to how to frame things differently. There's so many different things. But I think, I mean, it sounds fairly cliche, but I think the the thing that I am fully aware of when I go into any project is that I don't know everything <laughs> at all from the start, and every project is going to be slightly different and you're going to learn so much more and all and about things you're going to rediscover things that you haven't thought about for 10 years and you're going to uh, kind of 
re-educate yourself and and you know a bit of knowledge you may have picked up 12 years ago while working as a camera assistant may come in handy on the next film that you do or it may never come in handy it's all about being open and receiving wisdom from other people and kind of constantly re-educating yourself as you do each film um and if i'm going to be more tangible than that i'd say go come back to this thing about editing i i really 100 believe that editing is key to making a good film and i think it's very unheralded part of the process. The editors are basically, the way an edit is kind of basically creates the story really. Um, and you, with all the best intentions in the world, you can, write a, you can write a script which is very, very sprawling and incredibly complex and, and, but then you come to the edit and it may just not work as a filmic thing. So you need to then kind of almost rewrite it with the edit. And that's not to say that directing and um, producing and writing aren't important because they all are incredibly, incredibly important. But the, the edit is where the film is kind of, it's, it's the final push where you know if you've got something or not really. Um, and, the, and, it's, and it's the kind of, the bit in the middle, I say this now, is, is relatively simple, I think. You've got the writing, which is incredibly hard, as you all know, and then you've got yeah. the editing, which is incredibly difficult as well. And the bit in the middle, as long as you've got money and as long as you've got people, it, it will happen somehow along the way, unless, of course, you're Terry Gilliam or someone like that, and God descends on you. But the uh, generally, the, the middle part is, if you plan it right, is is quite simple to do. It, it really is the kind of creating the story and then recreating the story at the end, uh, the two main parts. So, well, I mean, it's interesting, because I, I think it's... I was listening to... Um another podcast where they were interviewing a writer and he was talking, he was talking, referring to Tolstoy. Okay. Tolstoy refers to transitions being the most important part of storytelling, which obviously the edit is what gives you the seamlessness yeah. to your transitions in your film. Yeah. Which is interesting, you know, from a novelist's point of view, he, he was thinking in those terms and it's, and it is, that is, I think that's one of the challenges when you're screenwriting is to think about what you're doing. Because obviously in cinema, you don't, you rarely do it in real time. Mm. So what you're doing is you're showing a story with the bits of information you need to know to understand it. Yeah. As opposed to, and then this happens and this happens and this happens. <laughs> yeah, that's really, it's really interesting that. I've never heard that quote before. That's really cool. But yeah, I, I kind of agree with it as well because I think the kind of balance of one scene versus another and, and in, in writing a novel or making a film, I think the balance between what you cut between from one incredibly tense, dramatic moment to a moment of calm, you know, those kind of, you know, those kind of juxtapositions are, are really what makes the kind of mood of the film. And on the flip side of that as well, what I always have to remind myself to do, because part of the problem, you know, we were talking about earlier about writing this kind of step outline work before diving into the main script, is once you write a step outline, you've kind of got the story there. And half of the fun is coming up with the story. So you kind of want to rush through the first draft to get this first draft finished because you know what happens to the story. Um, and I always have to remind myself in writing that not, everybody else doesn't know what's going to happen. Those moments of calm in the midst of scenes and those transitions to more calm moments where you can just let the atmosphere kind of soak in are really, really important as well. Um, and sometimes you forget to do that. And, and in filming, I was very aware of that for the edit. And I knew that I would have sometimes missed those kind of calm scenes, which need to be next to the more hectic scenes, which is exactly what these transitions are you're talking about. So I had a guy with a second camera going around and just filming loads and loads and loads and loads of Atmos stuff that I didn't know what it was necessarily for, but I knew that I'd need these kind of moments of calm and these moments of peace in between the kind of dramatic tension 
Um, which again was aware that I knew I wanted to do something within the edit. I wasn't quite sure what. And I guess it's the same with writing. You need to remember to put those scenes in because even though people will kind of gloss over them when they're reading your script, I think it's good to have them in mind before you go into production so that you know. You oh, know without the, a doubt. I mean, the, the easiest thing to forget to do sometimes is um, is what directors call the establishing shot. You know, it's mm. kind of it, it, is that is your chance to go. Oh, right, okay. I mean, there's there's different times into the pace where it doesn't matter, but if people don't know where they're going, if you're trying to take them along at some points as opposed to force their editing, then, yeah. <laughs> then you want to let them have a look around and experience it like the characters do. Exactly, because you know, even even though everybody who's making the film has been there for four days in the rain, looking at the same house, no one else has seen it before as well. So it's vital to get exactly, that kind of exactly. Space. Well, look now um, for a bit a bit of fun as part of the uh, podcast. I like to get some recommendations, and um, I, I, I prepped you before of this question. So, can you recommend a British film or a couple of films that you think are underrated and deserve a bit more kudos? Yes, I can. The um. The first one I want to talk about is a 90, I think it's 1990, maybe 1989, and it's a film called In the Name of the Father, which was um, a Jim Sheridan film, which is all about the, the Irish troubles, and it's got Daniel Day-Lewis in it, and generally any film with Daniel Day-Lewis is incredibly good. I'm, I, I'm not sure how kind of in the, the common film viewing thing it is. I, I haven't seen it since I was about 19, 20, I think, but it really profoundly affected me. Um, and I, and I haven't really heard about it for the last 20 years, really, and I, I just think that's a bit of a shame, but it was a really, really interesting kind of work on what it is to be a, a kind of terrorist and how being a terrorist in, in those, and it's a, in the Irish Troubles was a, you know, it's, it's, it's that kind of narrative, which is very relevant for today as well. So I think that one definitely deserves a re-release at some point. Well, that's um, that's the one that? set in the prison, isn't it? Sorry? That's the one set in prison. No, no, it's not. It's, 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 it, he's basically, he kind of, it's, it's part of it is set in prison, but it's, I'm trying to remember the exact narrative now. Um, but he is basically a, a terrorist kind of on the run, really, and it, there's love elements in there and, and all kinds of uh, different plot twists to it. But it's basically him at, at kind of dealing with the fact that he's a terrorist and he's done these terrible things, really. Ah, okay, okay. No, no, well, that's a good recommendation. So what's, your, what's your second one then? You had on, on the back burner as well. The second one is a film called The Claim, um, which is by Michael Winterbottom, who's one of our best and most prolific directors, I always think. Um, and he makes films that are different to anybody else. Um, and The Claim was, and it's technically it's British because it was done with British money and he's a British director and there's a couple of British actors in it. It was actually filmed in America with lots of an international cast, but it's based on Thomas Hardy's The Mayor of Casterbridge, but it kind of relocates the story to the kind of the Wild West and the kind of frontier in America at the turn of the century. And it's just the atmosphere and the, I mean, the story itself, the mayor of Castlebridge, I think is an absolutely amazing narrative anyway, but the, the atmosphere and what he does with the story in that film and, and turning it and kind of, you know, shows the kind of universalness of the story because it can be set anywhere and it still works in such a kind of dramatic and atmospheric way. Um, so yeah, the claim by Michael Winterbottom, which is—I uh, don't know that film at all, so I'll check that one out. It's very, very underrated. So um, Fossil is out now, and we can get it on DVD and various VOD platforms. Um, yeah. What, what, what next for you in in terms of feature film work? Have you got any other irons in the fire that you might be able to mention, or just hint I, at if you can't say specifically? No, no, I do. I've got a couple of projects that I'm working on. Um, 
I mean, there are always more than two projects that are going going around somewhere in, in those notebooks we were talking about. Um, but there are two. There's a horror film that I'm writing um, at the moment, which we've just actually put into iFeatures, which is a low-budget kind of regional filmmaking scheme. Um, so we're, we're waiting to hear back from there. And I think, you know, we've sent that around to other people as well, and a lot of people are quite interested in it. I think horror... Generally, people perk up because it's an easier sell than most other genres. I think there's quite a big horror market out there. And this this film isn't a traditional horror. It's a kind of period horror um, set during the Second World War, um, all about the Home Guard, um, which was quite an interesting spin on it. So I'm writing that with a friend of mine. And then I've got another... So Scary Dad's Army? Sorry? So Scary Dad's Army? Yeah, the way we're pitching it, speaking of log lines, is Dad's Army meets The Shining. Um, (laughs) But I, I, interesting, some people say, that's brilliant. Some people say, don't mention Dad's Army. But I've just heard that Dad's Army is having a uh, cinematic remake. with. Yes, Bill that's Nuffin. right. I, re- I read that somewhere in the bulletins. Yeah, so hopefully that'll st- stand us in good stead when we're trying to get money. And we can say, see, we're going to do the uh, antithesis of Dad's Army. <laughs> um, but then the other, and another project is a drama that I've been working on for years. It's that pet project that never goes away which is all kind of set half in London half in Morocco about Moroccan immigrants and um, a guy who goes over to Morocco to look for a, a, a criminal who's well not really a criminal but he goes over to Morocco on the on the back of somebody who's done a runner from London um, and that's been kind of going around my brain for about two and a half years now and I'm on about the fourth draft and it's driving me nuts as they always do but hopefully I think that one needs a bit more of a budget so that that is one for the future, I think. Brilliant. Well, it all sounds like it sounds very exciting stuff. Um, well, look, I thank you for your time. Thank you very much for your time. I hope that was okay. Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.